And good morning. When uh, Dan asked me to, to preach a few months ago, uh, my initial response was, I'm just glad I don't have circumcision uh, to <laughs> preach to you on. Um, however, I was soon uh, brought to my senses when I realized I had to preach about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled um, Abraham, the Genesis, the Gospel According to Abraham. And throughout the summer, we have had the opportunity to look at the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament history of Abraham, the, the beginning of God's covenant relationship with his people. And look not just at the who, what, when, and where that the Genesis, Genesis tells us, but to examine those, that historical record through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so doing that is not just a teaching of what, here's what Genesis says, but it requires us as preachers and as congregation to, to interact with what Jesus has done for us in our time in the new covenant and look back at how that is foreshadowed through the life of Abraham. So I'm hitting you with some pretty heavy stuff today, and I, I, I ask you this in return, um, to lean in to what God is saying, not through what I'm, my words, but through the truth of his scriptures. So grab a Bible, if you could. Um, it's right in front of you. If you don't have one with you, we're going to Genesis 18 in the passage that George just read, beginning in verse 16. Now, just as context for us here, if you recall, um, last week, Dan described in, in earlier in chapter 18 where there had been a really incredible encounter with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, with three messengers who, in some incredible way, um, represent God and his, and, and his angels who have interacted with Abraham. And Abraham showed them hospitality. And the covenant promise that God gave Abraham has been reinforced again when these men communicate to Abraham and to Sarah that despite their advanced years, they will indeed have a son, despite their unbelief, the son Isaac, from whom um, the covenant relationship is continued. So we see here in verse 16 that the men who had just come to interact and engage with Abraham and Sarah set out from there, from Abraham's place. And they went towards their ultimate destination, which is Sodom. And Abraham, in a continuation of really the radical hospitality that he, Dan described last week, that he showed these men when they arrived at his place, walked with them as they went upon their way. And in verse 17, we start to see that the relationship that the Lord has, between Abra- has with Abraham is distinct. It's, it's unique. It's a, we now would describe as a covenant relationship. It's not a hierarchical situation. God, we get inside his mind here in 17 where the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that he shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him. He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then we see the Lord acting upon that thought, communicates to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I, the Lord, will go down to see 
whether they have done altogether according to the outcry, to the cries that I have heard that have come to me. And if not, I will know. This is perhaps one of the first situations in Genesis, in the Bible, in the biblical narrative of God giving a prophetic word to one of his followers. God giving a prophetic word because of the unique covenant relationship. God entrusts Abraham with this foreknowledge, with this foreshadowing of what he's about to do. Abraham is given really the privilege of insight into God's design for history. But it's intense. (laughs) It's intense. And Abraham, knowing a little bit about God's heart, having learned a little bit through his years of walking with him in the beginning of this covenant relationship, identifies very quickly that when God communicates to him that he is going down to see what's going on in these cities, that Abraham, because he's, he's a leader, he knows what's happening, um, that he knows that is ramp with sin, Abraham immediately understands the truth that God's holiness and that sin cannot coincide. They can't be together. And as a result, there will be judgment. So Abraham is forced to, to enter into a, really a decision point. It's a decision point in his relationship with the Lord, and it really defines how he will interact with the Lord, not just with him, but with his legacy for years to come. Abraham could have done what I suspect many of us would have done if given that sort of a situation, if given that sort of a prophetic word. He could have said words to the effect of, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty heavy. What you doing there, God? Um, Appreciate the heads up. I'm going to head back to my tent right now. And um, I'm going to steer clear. Thanks for the heads up. Got it. Moving on my way. Or he could have said this. Oh, Lord. It's about time somebody did something with those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. They are the worst. They're a disaster. Evil. About time. Or he could have said... God, I, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I've got some family down there. If you don't mind, just, just let, let me go get them and get out, and then, hey, whatever you do is up to you. He does none of that. What Abraham does is, is really incredible because he engages with the living God. He shows incredible mercy. Again, this is Sodom and Gomorrah we're talking about. Two cities and two words, even when we say them today, nearly 4,000 years later, are synonymous with evil, sin, with brokenness, selfishness. Abraham, knowing what that means, comes to God and says, Lord, have mercy. Look in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but, but, Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then these four words, they're kind of throwaway words until you really think about what they mean. It says, then Abraham drew near. Then Abraham, having been informed of what God was doing in his boldness, really, boldness, he drew near to the Lord. And he says this, incredible. 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it from the 50 righteous who are in it? And then verse 25, which just jumps off the page. Far be it from you to do such a thing, Lord. Think of the boldness to say that. Far be it from you, far be it for you to do such a thing, Lord. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Have we said that in our lives? <laughs> Lord, I don't understand this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord and Abraham continue to interact in this really amazing dialogue between them where the Lord says, he basically calls, calls Abraham's bluff. He says, yeah, okay, fair enough, Abraham. Um, if I do find 50 righteous at Sodom, I'll spare the whole place. I will pardon those whose sin is off the chain. I will pardon them for the sake of the 50 righteous. Not just I'll take out the righteous, but I'll pardon everybody. I'll give the righteous a chance to exert their leverage, exert their influence, and redeem this nasty, terrible situation. And then Abraham in his boldness says again, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I'm but dust and ashes. However, what if we're a little bit short? Okay? What if we get 45 people? Will you still destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And God says, I won't destroy it if I find 45. And again, Abraham comes back. Well, what about 40? You got it. What about 30? Okay, 30. What about 20? 20 it is. What about 10? If these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, two major cities of the ancient age, if there are 10 people who are righteous, Lord, will you save it? He says, you got it. Now, you've got to think if you're Abraham at this point, you got a pretty good deal, okay? You have, you have intervened with the Lord, and you would think in two cities, there's got to be at least 10 police officers, firefighters, you know, hopefully a good lawyer, um, you know, somebody involved. There's got to be 10 halfway decent people in this place. I mean, it's not total anarchy. There's some structure there. These cities have not gone up in flames over the years they've been together. There's got to be at least 10 people holding it together, the fabric of society. So Abraham, I suspect, walks away from that situation with the Lord thinking, whew, they're, they're all right, they're saved. So Abraham, we, we can look at this scripture and, and, and in this situation, say this is Abraham at his finest. This is Abraham coming to the Lord, not for his own selfish benefit, but for others, seeking mercy and taking, uh, t- fulfilling and, and really taking advantage in a good way of the opportunity that God has given to him by having a covenant relationship with him, by coming before the Lord and in boldness, but humility, asking the Lord to do what is right. Notice what Abraham doesn't do in this situation. He doesn't say, Lord, if you do this, you're not who I thought you were. He appeals to his innate sense of justice. He knows who the Lord is. 
and he submits to it. And if we just got that out of this passage, that'd be, that'd be great. That's a good sermon. However, the, the reality of the situation is, if I were to stop with that, I don't think my conscience would have let that happen because we all know what comes next. If you've been in the church at all in your life, or even paying attention in culture, you know what happens next week to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, spoiler alert, it does not work out well for them. Okay? So knowing that, knowing that, I mean, destruction, that judgment, I mean, it's bad, is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. And knowing that God is a God who keeps his promises, how do we then reconcile what we just read in that chapter of Genesis with what we know is to come? You cannot read Abraham's interaction with God without being aware of the foreshadowing in the immediate sense of what's coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. Is it that there aren't 10 righteous people in those cities? I submit to you, it depends on what you mean by the word righteous. It depends what you mean by the word righteous. Because we know that the God of all the earth will do what is just. Now in Abraham's context at that time, in this, this place in his relationship with the Lord, on that side of the cross, righteousness is inherently works-based. Yeah, are there, no, there are no doubt good and decent people somewhere within Sodom and Gomorrah. I would submit it almost has to be. And Abraham is associating that with righteousness. But the Lord has a different definition of righteousness. The Lord's definition of righteousness is a standard to which none of us can attain. Abraham could have gotten in his, in his bargaining with the Lord, I, I, he could have got all the way down to one person. He could have gone from 50 down to one. And if the question to the Lord is, Lord, if there's one righteous, will you save everybody else? And the Lord says, yes. I don't care if that entire city was made up of pillars of the community, chamber of commerce, the rotary, whatever. There are none righteous. So Abraham is making a request, and God is answering his request, but doing it in a, in a way to where the word, the concept of righteousness is very different in the Lord's eye. Because God is communicating to Abraham that I am holy. I am just. I will do what is right. And there are none righteous. There are none righteous. All are separated from me. Everybody there is a sinner, whether they know it or not. And degree is, is it matters for the world, but in, in a theological context, the matter of degree, it, it doesn't matter. There are none righteous. Well, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Abraham does everything, quote-unquote, right, 
and yet judgment still comes? Are his prayers answered? Well, this is where it's important for us to look at this text within the lens of the gospel. The Bible is not just a collection of individual stories. It's a composite story of God's work and how it carries on to us today. The gospel text that we read today is another example of someone intervening on behalf of sinners. It's as if Abraham is saying to the Lord, Lord, I hope and pray that you will give these folks a chance, that you will spare them, but not my will, but yours be done. 2,000 years later, we see Abraham's heir in the bookends of the covenant say those words to the Lord. Lord, if this cup would pass, let it, but I'll do it, because not my will, but yours be done. Abraham cannot, never could, never will be able to lift the judgment of sin for Sodom and Gomorrah or for anybody. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus did what Abraham could not do. And Paul's words in 2 Corinthians says that he became sin through his death on the cross He became sin who knew no sin, so that, what? That we, we, us, everyone else, might become righteous in the eyes of God. Is there no one righteous? No, there's not. There's one. There's one who's righteous. And by his wounds, we are healed. So what do we do with this? We really have a choice in, in, in all this because the, the, the question that, that Abraham asks of the Lord of shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Lord, um, will you put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares at the wicked? Far be that from you. He's totally right. He's totally right. The Lord will not put the righteous to death with the wicked. But the question is, how do we become righteous? Abraham is speaking a truth without really knowing what he's saying. Righteousness is the only way, is the only way to avoid the fate of the wicked. And righteousness is by nothing we do. It's by nothing Dan does or Gus or Mike or me or Brian or Mike or anybody. Okay, There is nothing you can do to be righteous except take the hand that Jesus is offering you, the nail-scarred hand, and say, I got you. Thank you, Lord, because he's got you. That's it. That's the only way to become righteous. And here's the thing. It's just. It's just. Because but for that, we're broken. We don't deserve to be, we are not holy. We're screwed up. And we cannot abide and be in the presence of the Holy Lord. 
He is holy. And but for what Jesus has done for us, rattle up. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What's the application? Well, the application is really twofold. For those of us, everyone who has walked this earth on this side of the cross, we have a choice to make. And it's a choice of whether or not we will receive the free gift that Jesus, the Christ, paid so dearly for. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. It's a precious price. And, and we like, I like, we like, maybe it's our culture, but I don't think it's that much different now than it has been over the ages. We like to think that somehow we are immune from having to, to engage with that ultimate question of who are we living for? Where do we find our righteousness? Is it in ourselves or in the cross? And that question's not going away. In whatever manner or form that you personally, individually, in your own way, engage with that truth, I would encourage you, if nothing else today, to hear that and do it. Get real with the Lord. He can handle it. He can handle it. For those of us in this room for whom this is an affirmation of what we've staked our life to, then we should read Abraham's interaction with the Lord and get great hope from it. Because it's interacting with the Lord on our own power is nothing but despair. There's nothing we can do to change the situation. But through grace, through the grace we've been given through Jesus, we have hope. It's real hope, not pie in the sky. It's tangible. Justice, justice, that Abraham appeals to God on behalf of justice. And justice is, de- is, is described as a perfect balance of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Because of what Jesus has done, we acknowledge the truth. We acknowledge the truth of our depravity and that We need the Lord. When we recognize that truth, we are then afforded grace to live it out. And then we, we, because of that grace, we follow the example that Abraham sets forth at the beginning of this covenant relationship with the Lord, where when we see judgment in the world, when we see our friends, our coworkers, our families who are separated from the Lord, when we see just the junk in our culture, or the evil on our TV screens, we, we don't respond with a better-than-thou attitude. We don't throw up our hands in despair. Because we have experienced grace, there's not a judgmental bone in our body. Because as far as the Lord is concerned, we are no different. And so what we do is we fall on our face, and we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, give them more time. Lord, make yourself known. Repair that relationship. Not because I want you to do it. Not in my will, not in my power, but yours and yours alone. That's the gospel. And that's what we see here. The story begins as Abraham engages with the Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth 
do what is just? Praise be to God, the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.